thank you guys for coming. This is um, uh, this is me kind of splitting the podcast up a little bit at this moment. Um, I'm not 100% sure I'm going to stick to this idea, this format, but when I was trying to um, find direction for my Telltale channel, it took me a really long time. It took me a long time to find the direction for the science channel. In fact, I'm, I'm still kind of searching out the direction for that channel. Um, and so as time goes on, I feel like I'll, I'll find direction for the Telltale podcast channel as well. Um, at this moment, here's my plan. My plan is to do 30 minutes with guests on Sundays, normal time. Um, I may change the time up a little bit to get some European viewers in um, just this Sunday, next Sunday, not exactly sure, but I'll, I'll announce it when I know for sure. So I'm going to, I'm planning on doing 30 minutes with them, with guests, and then I'm, I want to do 30 minutes reading from some religious text and analyzing it, talking about it. And I want to do 30 minutes talking about current events. And I want to do these things separately. So right now my plan is to do 30 minutes current events and then separate from that 30 minutes religious text. And both of those will be off air. Both of those are just me recording, um, you know, while I talk about this stuff. And honestly, it's for me, it's a lot easier to talk when I know that somebody is actually listening so I'll probably end up doing it like in the po the voice podcast channel, even though, you know, there's no feedback from anybody. <clears throat> so here's the deal. This is this one is not the current events one, obviously, uh, as I'm sure many of you have surmised. So this is the religious text part. Um, here's what happened just a few days. I think like t two, three days ago, Jehovah's Witnesses released a brand new book. They had an annual meeting, right? And it's a pretty big deal, actually. They had their 2018 annual meeting, and they don't always make big changes, but this time they did. They made some really big changes they call New Light. It's basically where the governing body has decided that um, they their doctrine is changing. Uh, they, they, you know, they explain this away by saying Jehovah is revealing new information to them every day. It's new light from Jehovah. And um, so anyways, they they released this this brand new book and they're saying they have all this new light. The book's name is Pure Worship of Jehovah Restored at Last. And man, do they say some crazy stuff in this book. Um and something I noticed, just kind of glancing through the pictures in here, the pictures are very reminiscent of, like, old-school Jehovah's Witness scare tactics stuff, you know? Uh, let me give you some examples, okay? So, as far as I know, I mean, this is the very first time I'm opening this book, basically. As far as I know, it's based on the book of Ezekiel, and there are some weird prophecies and stuff in that book, in the book of Ezekiel. Um, but yeah, so let's just kind of glance through here and just take a quick look at some of the pictures and, and things like that. 
understanding Ezekiel's prophecies. Uh, let's see, Ezekiel, his life and times. Ezekiel means God strengthens. Okay, huh. Yeah, okay, so this is super classic Jehovah's Witness imagery. Just like two angels with... I don't even know what this is. It's it's really, really beautiful, though. Like, their artwork is so beautiful. And at the same time, it's scary as shit. It's like really crazy-looking artwork. Like, they have some amazing artists. Um, and they have for, like, decades... I wonder if the same artists are still drawing um, as we're doing the artwork before. Probably not, because I've heard that all of their art is digital now. But anyways, uh, yeah, just scrolling down through here a little bit more. I mean, all of this imagery is just classic Jehovah's Witness imagery. This is the kind of stuff I would have nightmares about, for real. I mean... There's there's one specific picture that I'm looking for here. It's um, it's a picture of the beast with seven heads and ten horns and the harlot from the book of Revelation, I believe. They have two pictures with the harlot and the beast. Um, this is truly amazing artwork, though, really. Let me just find that picture here. Um, okay, here we go. Here it is. Yeah, okay, here we go. The eyes just pop in this picture. It's like... They're fierce. It's so crazy. And there's a second picture. Yeah, this is where the beast is ravenously about to eat the great harlot. I, this is so crazy looking. This is insane. So anyway, I wanted to give this a read. Although it's probably going to be a little bit dry... Um, we're going to do it 30 minutes at a time if possible, and this book is actually kind of long. It's a, it's a couple hundred pages from what I understand, but it reveals a lot of new light, a lot of new doctrine, and it's supposed to be really interesting. One of the new things that they, they changed, or that at least that they doubled down on, is the claim that the, uh, the year 607 BCE... I'm having a little bit of trouble recalling exactly the, you know, the area and the time and the place and everything, but they make a claim about ancient Jerusalem, I think, and it, how it fell, and then it was rebuilt 70 years later, and then you've got, you know, a day for a year, and Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and middle, 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 you get to 1914. It's like a fundamental part of their doctrine. Anyway, they doubled down on it when re in reality, the year that Jerusalem fell was 587, not 607. We have absolutely incontrovertible proof of that. Um, so yeah, Jehovah's Witnesses just refuse to accept it and they're just doubling down on this. Okay, well, let's get started on this book. So here's chapter one. Page one, dear lovers of Jehovah, this is a letter from the governing body. Ugh, I guess it's not addressed to me. Dear lovers of Jehovah, the year was 1971. Those who attended the Divine Name District Assembly held that year were thrilled to receive several new publications. Okay, just a note for what, what was happening in 1971 for Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, that was four years away from 1975. Now, there was a governing body member... 
by the name of Fred Franz. Now, his nephew, Ray Franz, he was a governing body member too, but not until later. He worked in the headquarters for like 50 years or something. I mean, he was an old timer and he helped come up with doctrine and stuff. And eventually in 1980, I think, um, Ray Franz left the organization and said, I don't want anything to do with this anymore. Then wrote a book called Crisis of Conscience. It was an expose on the Watchtower Society. Um, so yeah, that was, I think that book came out 1984. So I think he was disfellowshipped in 1981. He published the book 1984. And his uncle Fred continued to be a governing body member all the way through 1992, I believe, when he died. Um, and Fred is pretty tied up in Watchtower history. It's super interesting. Anyway, so Fred said that in 1975, that was going to be 6,000 years since man was created. That was his claim. And that was going to enter into the 7,000th seven year or so, something, right? And God rested on the seventh day, and he had this whole thing about numerology and how important it was. And so, you know, 1975, that is when the end is going to come. So the, the Watchtower Society started saying the motto is stay alive to 75. Stay alive to 75. If you're on your deathbed, then just push it off just another year, another eight months, another six months. Stay alive till 75, whatever it takes to make it through Armageddon. Um, and then you'll, you know, you'll come out the other side and you'll be in paradise, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so that's what was happening around that time in 1971. Let's continue with the letter. The publications were described as just beyond anyone's imagination. Concerning one of those new releases, a brother said, it's the most exciting preview of things to come that we have ever had. What was he referring to? Shouldn't that be to what was he referring? All right, maybe I'm just being pedantic. It was the book entitled, The Nations Shall Know That I Am Jehovah. How? But why did this book create such excitement? Because it contained updated explanations of the prophecies found in the Bible book of Ezekiel. Prophecies that affect the future of all mankind. In the years since the release of the No Jehovah book, ugh, they're going to say that name a lot in this book, I imagine. I'm going to be cringing a lot. In the years since the release of the No Jehovah book, the number of God's people has mushroomed from some 1.5 million to well over 8 million. These millions of servants of Jehovah collectively speak over 900 languages. Many have never had an opportunity to study a book that explains in detail the inspired prophecies recorded by the prophet Ezekiel. So, in this book, it just this is like the opening letter. They're citing Bible verses here, and I will bet anything that right here they say these millions of servants of Jehovah collectively speak over 900 different languages. And then they cite Zechariah 8.23. Let's just look that up. Zechariah 8.23, uh, was it? eight? Wait, Zechariah 8.23, yeah. Now let's look. Let's look at what this says. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, 10 people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. What? 
Why did they cite Zechariah 8.23 there? That is confusing. These millions of servants of Jehovah collectively speak over 900 languages. And then they cite Zechariah 8.23 that says, 10 people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you. Doesn't make any sense. Uh, whatever, whatever. We're like two paragraphs in. I am not going to dissect that ridiculous thing right now. Additionally, in the decades since 1971, our understanding of many Bible truths has been greatly enhanced as the light has continued to grow brighter. In 1985, we started to see clearly how the other sheep are declared righteous as friends of God. <clears throat> then in 1995, we understood for the first time that the final judging of the sheep, quote-unquote, and the goats would take place during the coming Great Tribulation. Okay, now they cite Matthew 24, 25, so on. All these adjustments have had an impact on our understanding of the book of Ezekiel. Okay, so here's them basically saying they're making changes. Uh, now that they've, they've adjusted their idea of this or that, now they have to go back and change things to adapt to it. I would really like to see them change their doctrine on something useful, like the two-witness rule. Or I'd like to see them change their doctrine on the 1914 teaching or the second-generation teaching. That would be awesome. It's something that's, that's actually really stupid and actually doing harm in some cases. I'd love to see them change that. Okay, in recent years, the light has continued to grow brighter still. Consider the lessons learned from Jesus' illustrations. Many of those lessons have now become crystal clear in our minds and hearts. A number of those illustrations refer to events that will soon take place during the fast-approaching Great Tribulation. In a similar way, our understanding of certain prophecies found in the book of Ezekiel has been clarified. Included among these are prophecies concerning Gog of Magog, now, that's interesting. I, I'm going to be interested to see what they have to say about Gog of Magog. Um, you guys know I don't like getting political on my main channel, but I'll get a little bit political here. When George Bush was going around trying to get support for the Iraq War, he went to the leader of France. I think it was Jacques Chirac at the time. And he famously said something about believing that... Iraq was Gog of Magog, and that he had to send America in to fight for God or some ridiculous shit. That makes that a holy war. If I mean, if that's true, Jacques Chirac claimed it, it to be true, George Bush didn't deny it, um, that would be a holy war. That would be a religious war, a Christian war. So who knows? I mean, who knows? Um you know, I, I didn't really like George Bush, but honestly, he's better than what we've got now in my eyes. He wasn't all that bad, considering, all things considered, right? <laughs> he could be a lot worse. Anyway. Okay, continuing on. No wonder, then, that many of Jehovah's people have asked, when will we get a book that provides an updated explanation of Ezekiel's prophecies? Yeah, apparently they haven't, like, Jehovah's, Jehovah's Witnesses haven't released a book on Ezekiel in 
50 years, I think. It was like 1970-something since they last wrote something on Ezekiel, from my understanding. <clears throat> As you read through... Uh, okay, hang on. Let me just step back. Uh, the book, Pure Worship of Jehovah, Restored at Last, is such a publication. As you read through its 22 chapters and meditate on the beautiful illustrations found therein, you'll be amazed at all the careful research that's gone into its preparation. Much prayerful thought was given to ascertaining why Jehovah provided the fascinating Bible book of Ezekiel. Oh, God. Careful consideration was given to such questions as, what lessons were provided in the book of Ezekiel for those who lived in Ezekiel's day, as well as for us today? Which prophecies speak about events that are still in the future? Should we look for any types and anti-types in Ezekiel's prophecies? The answers to these questions provide the clearest understanding yet of this long-cherished Bible book. You know what I think I'm going to do? Um, I think that what I'm going to do is I'm going to make note like of all these really weird, obscure Jehovah's Witness terms like King of the North and Gog of Magog. And uh, let's see, what was the other one they mentioned? It was... Um, Antitypes, yeah. Types and antitypes. And I'm going to address, like, obscure Jehovah's Witness beliefs on my main channel sometime soon so that we can kind of cover what some of those things are because that's, like, really, really interesting. Uh, I mean, they're an odd group, an odd bunch, but when you look at them from the outside, they don't look all that much more odd than like, you know, your typical Mormon or, or whatever. The, um, they really get weird when you start looking into their like deep beliefs about the king of the north, the king of the south. Supposedly in this book, they called out Russia as the, the enemy of Jehovah's Witnesses, basically. They said that they're in, they're, there's a Bible prophecy predicting what they're doing right now and all kinds of crazy stuff. Called them out by name. So I'm interested to get to that part. I don't know where it is or or any of that, but we'll get there. <clears throat> okay. As you read the book of Ezekiel from start to finish, you cannot help but be in awe of the heavenly part of Jehovah's organization. No doubt you're also amazed at the lofty standards Jehovah has put in place for both those in heaven and those on earth who wish to worship him acceptably. The Pure Worship book will help to enhance your appreciation for what Jehovah has already done for his people, as well as for what he will do for them in the, in the near future. You'll notice that this book emphasizes two themes over and over again. First, in order to please Jehovah, <laughs> in order to please Jehovah, we must know and acknowledge him as the universal sovereign. Second, we must worship Jehovah in the way that he approves bringing our lives into harmony with his lofty standards. Okay, here's something else that's changed. Um, FYI, I, I think I mentioned this. I just wanted to reiterate. I think this is going to be about a 30-minute thing total. We've been in here for about 20 minutes already, uh, 15 minutes. So we've got about 15 more minutes, just letting you guys know. Anyway, uh, I mean, I've been reading the book for about 15 minutes. Anyways, um... 
Yeah, where was I with this? Uh, okay, so right before I left the the organization, they uh, no, right after I left, actually, they created the study edition of the Watchtower, and is basically just like the the private copy that regular members publishers get. Like the public is not given copies of this of the study edition. The public is given copies of the, I think it's just called the public edition. I don't remember now, but they have, they have two copies of the watchtower, one for members, one for the public, right? So they kind of started that separation between public literature and private literature right after I left, or it, it was around the same time. Uh, that is really, really concerning, honestly. Like, when a, when a cult actually creates an avenue through which to hide information from the public, that's just one step down the wrong road. So, I don't know. Um, this book reads like it's not designed for the public. This book reads like it's made for a an active Jehovah's Witness. Um, it it isn't really like a public facing book. I mean, I'm sure they could give it to the public, but any old person on the street wouldn't probably wouldn't really understand the implications of what was being said here because you have to kind of be an insider to understand what they're saying. Like they're using words like anti-types and types here, you know, King of the North and all that stuff. You have to have some underlying understanding of Jehovah's Witness doctrine be, to just to read and understand this book in the first place. So anyways, it, it yeah, it just doesn't seem like it's designed for the public, but I'll see if I can put it in a format that makes a little bit more sense for the public. And then you guys will appreciate just how ridiculous this book is. Uh, okay, anyway. It's our heartfelt desire that this publication will strengthen your resolve to worship Jehovah in a way that honors his great and holy name. At the same time, it, uh, may it encourage you to keep in I'm sorry, may it encourage you to keep in expectation of the time when all the nations will have to know that he is Jehovah. Ezekiel 36:23. May our loving Father Jehovah, ugh, cringe, richly bless your efforts to understand the book that he inspired the prophet Ezekiel to write. Okay. I thought they were going to say May our loving Father Jehovah richly bless your efforts to understand the book that he inspired the governing body to publish. I swear I thought that's what it was going to say. In fact, I'm honestly surprised they didn't say that because they fancy themselves prophets. I don't think they, I don't know that they've ever come out and called themselves prophets. But they, they do view themselves as, you know, passing down information from Jehovah to people you know to members so i mean that that's how they view themselves is as prophets so anyway all right so this is a table of contents i'm glad to see that they've got a table of contents in this one uh, it sucks when a book does not have one so i i can attest to how sucky that is okay so the so chapter one is the introduction chapter one and two it is Jehovah your God you must worship, and God approved their gifts. That's kind of a, an ambiguous title. All right. 
Uh, Section one, the heavens were opened. I began to see visions of God is chapter three. And chapter four is who are the living creatures with four faces? God, this is going to be interesting. Then we got section two and it's called, it was my sanctuary that you defiled pure worship corrupted. (laughs) Okay. So that encompasses chapter five, six, and seven. Here's chapter five. See the evil detestable things that they are doing. And then chapter six is the end is now upon you. And seven is the nations will have to know that I am Jehovah. And then finally we wait, is that finally? Nope. Oh, we've got more. Okay. Then we've got section three. It's called, I will collect you together. Uh, Okay. No, it says, I will dot, dot, dot ellipsis collect you together in quotes. I wonder what Bible verse they quote mind for that. Restoration of pure worship promised. Okay, so that that encompasses chapter 8 through 14. We've got, I will raise up one shepherd. I will give them a unified heart. You will come to life. I've appointed you as a watchman. I will make them one nation, describe the temple, and finally, this is the law of the temple. Hmm, interesting. Okay, so section 4, I will zealously defend my holy name. Pure worship survives attack. Okay. They don't seem to think that. I mean, they 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 seem to be like living in fear of criticism here. Um, that's a problem, you know. Pure worship survives attack. That's super interesting. Then why do they forbid people from talking to disfellowshipped people, lest they get disfellowshipped themselves? Why do they tell people to just turn their brains off when they talk to an apostate? Why are they so afraid? of members talking to apostates if pure worship survives attack. I guess we'll find out. This book has the answers. Okay, so that that's section four's name, and it encompasses chapter 15 through 18. I will bring an end to your prostitution. Put a mark on the foreheads. I am against you, O Gog. And finally, my great rage will flare up. I think that's going to be the most interesting section. Uh, I'm placing bets. We'll see. And then finally, this is section five. I believe this is finally, yeah. Section five is named, I will dwell among the people, pure worship of Jehovah restored. And that encompasses 19 through 22. Everything will live wherever the stream goes. Allot the land as an inheritance. The name of the city will be Jehovah is there. That's weird. Okay, weird name. And then finally, just worship God. That's a creative name. Okay. Telling you, man, this artwork is really beautiful. Now they have the, the these little sections about teaching boxes and timelines and things. Okay. This is going to be super interesting, I bet. Man, I can't wait to read this book. Okay. Let's get into it. Chapter one. It is Jehovah, your God, you must worship. Okay. So this is kind of a new format. I, I haven't seen this format since I left. Um, I don't honestly, really, I don't read a lot of Jehovah's witness literature, especially not recent Jehovah's witness, uh, literature, just not really my thing. Um, you know, I leave that to people like Lloyd Evans, the John Cedars channel and other people, and I trust them to disseminate information to me about it. Um, but yeah, I'm hoping that maybe I can start reading some of this stuff because it is pretty interesting. Okay, so they have a focus section. This is the focus of the chapter. It says, 
Um, why pure worship needs to be restored. That's the focus of this chapter. And Okay, and they've got the questions on the side, too. That's new. Interesting. Instead of, like, at the bottom. Actually, you know, I, I kind of like this layout. This is a nice layout. Not too bad. So here's a question for 1 and 2, par uh, paragraph 1 and 2. How does Jesus come to be in the wilderness of Judea? in the autumn of 29 CE, and what happens to him there? See opening picture. <laughs> okay, so 29 CE, that's like three years, four years before he died, roughly, allegedly, um, if he was even a real person, still haven't accepted that he is. So, All right, so let's read the two paragraphs. It is early autumn of 29 CE, and Jesus is in the, I'm sorry, and Jesus is in the wilderness of Judea, just north of the Dead Sea. He was led to this place by Holy Spirit, following his baptism and anointing. Here, amid a barren landscape of rocks and, uh, and ravines, Jesus has had 40 days for some quiet time to fast, pray, and meditate. Perhaps during this time, Jehovah has communicated with his son, preparing him for what lies ahead. Now, when Jesus is weakened by hunger, Satan approaches him. What happens next reveals a vital issue that involves all who love pure worship, including you. Including you. If you are a son of God, dot, 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 is the next subheading. Okay, so let's just take a look at the uh, question for one and two. That was, um, how does Jesus come to be in the wilderness of Judea in the autumn of 29 CE, and what happens to him there? Okay, so the answer that they're looking for, this is the answer I'd give if I were holding up my hand at, at a meeting or whatever, getting ready to answer. I would say he was weakened by... Okay, wait a minute. What happens to him there? He's approached by Satan and tempted, or or Satan attempts to tempt him. Anyways, um, now, how did he come to be in the wilderness of Judea? Um, I don't know. I guess he. it was after he supposedly got anointed and baptized... I'm not sure. I don't remember the Bible saying he was anointed, though, FYI. I'm, I'm still trying to remember that bit. Is that something that Jehovah's Witnesses inserted in? Um, I may, I'll have to look that up later. But anyways, so yeah, I guess he got baptized, got anointed, supposedly, and then went to this quiet area and fasted for a while. Then he got tempted by Satan. Okay, so that's... Uh, paragraph one and two. This is paragraph three and four's question. Satan introduced the first two temptations with what words, and what may he be? What may have he been trying to get Jesus to doubt? And then question B: How does Satan use similar tactics today? Okay, if you're a son of God, paragraphs three and four. Read Matthew four one through seven. So usually, if they were studying this. They'd stand up at the podium, and they'd have a reader. The reader would not only read the paragraphs, but he'd also read the Bible verses anytime they, they did that. I'm not going to read the Bible verses right now. Satan introduced the first two temptations with the subtle words, If you're a son of God, did Satan doubt that Jesus is God's son? No. That fallen angel... I'm sorry. That fallen angelic son of God knew full well that Jesus is God's firstborn son. Satan, no doubt, also knew the words Jehovah spoke from heaven as, uh, at Jesus' baptism. This is my son, the beloved, whom I have approved. Perhaps Satan wanted to get Jesus to doubt whether his father was trustworthy, 
and truly cared about him. With the first temptation, to turn stones into bread, Satan in effect asked, Since you're God's son, why does your father not feed you in this barren wilderness? With the second temptation, to jump off the battlement of the, of the temple, Satan in a sense asked, Since you're God's son, do you really trust your father to protect you? Satan uses similar tactics today. Okay, so let's just look at question A. Satan introduced the first two temptations with what words? Since you're the son of God. That's the answer they'd be looking for. And then B, how does Satan use similar tactics today? The answer that they would be looking for is Satan uses similar tactics today. The tempter waits until true worshipers are weakened or discouraged, and then he attacks, often in subtle ways. See, this is crazy. Like, this book is designed to get you to give the answer they are looking for. I mean, no other answer is acceptable, first of all. They're, uh, They're scripting this whole thing for you. They want you to read it. And they want you to answer the questions that they want to make sure they that you got the point from this book. I mean, this is top tier brainwashing. No joke. I mean, it's dead serious. This is top tier brainwashing right here. They've been honing their craft for over a hundred years. It's insane. Okay, let's let's check out chapter five. Consider how Jesus responded to the first two temptations. He had no doubt about his father's love for him, and he put absolute trust in his father. Without hesitation, Jesus rejected Satan by quoting his father's inspired word. Fittingly, Jesus quoted scriptures that contain the divine name, Jehovah. See, that's the problem here. That's not the divine name. Jays didn't even exist until, what, 400 years ago or something. This kills me. Why do they keep saying that's God's name when they know for a fact it's not? Okay, let's just finish this paragraph. What better way for God's son to show that he trusted in his father than to use his name, the unique name that stands as a guarantee that Jehovah will fulfill all his promises? Okay. um, Okay, so here's a footnote. The name Jehovah is understood by some to mean he causes to become. It well fits Jehovah's role both as a creator and as the fulfiller of his purpose. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, as the fulfiller of his purposes. I'm not sure where they got that. Jehovah is just a straight up made up name. It's not real. They stuck it in there back in like the what the 1400s or something. It was the very first appearance of the name Jehovah, and it did not have a J. It had an I. It was I-E-H-O-V-A, I think, is how it was spelled. And then when the King James Bible was being compiled, I think in the late 1500s, early 1600s, they put the name Jehovah in for the very first time. I think it was 1611, 1613, somewhere in there. Anyways, it, you know, it just didn't exist back then. So the fact that they're trying to capitalize off of the name by saying it's so fitting that Jesus used God's name that, and it means this thing and all this other junk, it's complete bullshit. Like, it doesn't mean that. It can't possibly. I mean, Jesus, even if he did exist, which I seriously doubt, couldn't have possibly intended to mean that because that word didn't exist at the time. The, the, 
sounds that come from your throat did not exist. People didn't know they could make those noises. I'm sure they knew they could make the noises, but they didn't make the noises. It wasn't in the language at the time. So anyway, it just kills me, man. All right, let's finish this up. Let's let's get down to uh, the next subheading, and uh, and then we'll quit. We can resist Satan's subtle attacks by drawing on Jehovah's word and by reflecting on the meaning of the divine name. If we apply, if we apply to ourselves what the scriptures say about Jehovah's love and concern for his worshipers, including the downhearted, we can reject the say. I'm sorry. We can reject the satanic lie that Jehovah could never love us or approve of us. The satanic lie that Jehovah could never love us or approve of us. That's very odd that they worded it that way, that they said it that way. And if we keep in mind that Jehovah always lives up to the meaning of his name, what meaning? This is killing me. We will not doubt that the fulfiller of promises is worthy of our complete trust. And see, this is another thing. They use the name Jehovah and the Watchtower Society interchangeably, or the governing body and Jehovah, interchangeably. The governing body says this, Jehovah says that. As far as they're concerned, it's the same entity, the same being, the same thing. What, though, is Satan's primary goal? What does he really want from us? The answer became clear when Satan presented Jesus with a third temptation. Okay, so that's the end of this subheading. The next one's called Fall Down and Do an Act of Worship to Me. Okay, so yeah, that, I, I remember that. That's in the Bible, I think that's a part where Satan told Jesus that if he fell down and did an act of worship to him, then he'd give him food or some other thing like that. Um, yeah, my, my biggest issue with this whole thing is the subtle ways that the governing body is wording things in an effort to push people in a certain direction, push them a, a you know, toward a certain feeling. They want to instill a certain feeling in people. Um, you know, it says, we will not doubt that the fulfiller of promises is worthy of our complete trust. They're trying to make people um, more trusting of Jehovah, a.k.a. the Watchtower Society. Um, and then further up, you know, they just keep using the name Jehovah, Jehovah. Kind of doubling down on that. I mean, they know they're wrong at this point. For a while, they argued that that was God's name. That was always God's name. And eventually, as far as I know, uh, they finally put in their, like, on their website, they said, we know it's not God's real name. We know that it's Yahweh. We know the Tetragrammaton is YHWH, not JHVH. We understand that. But just like Jesus is kind of an English translation of Yeshua, Jehovah is an English translation of Yahweh. That's what they say. Um, I don't see any reason to switch to an English translation. I mean, I don't know the origins of the name Jesus, but it, it feels to me like... Yahweh is a perfectly acceptable name. Why do we have to switch to some made-up thing? Jesus is a made-up name, too. It's not Jesus. It was never Jesus. It's not Jesus in the Bible. It's not Jesus in Hebrew or Greek or any of that. It's only Jesus in America, pretty much. 
and Europe, you know, English speaking countries, it's Jesus. Um, but yeah, they just made that name up. It, it kills me. So anyways, we'll stop there for now. Um, I appreciate you guys coming and just listening to me go through this book. Hopefully we can get through this book pretty quickly. I, I wasted a lot of time. I don't know that I'd call it wasted. It, it was all pretty interesting to me. I hope it's interesting to you guys too. Even just going through the, the letter from the governing body members and, and just kind of going through the table of contents and stuff. It's all pretty interesting stuff, so. Anyway, yeah, we'll do this again next week. I appreciate you guys coming and uh, and listen to me uh, talk.